even beyond that, the spiritual disciplines are often not mountaintop experiences. And so you have to get used to being like, I read the scriptures today and it was baffling or frustrating or nothing. Like it wasn't any of those. I just, it was like an interesting thing. I'll probably forget what I read today, but it fed me. This is the words of life. And so I do think there needs, there's a sense of that even these spiritual practices are ordinary. That was Tish Harrison Warren, and this is the Things Above podcast. My guest today is Tish Harrison Warren. She is a priest in the Anglican Church in North America. She's worked in ministry settings for over a decade as a campus minister at InterVarsity Graduate and Faculty Ministries and as an associate rector, as an outreach worker to addicts and those in poverty. Uh, through various churches and nonprofit organizations, and most recently as a writer-in-residence at Church of the Ascension in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She's the author of Liturgy of the Ordinary, Sacred Practices in Everyday Life, which won Christianity Today's 2018 Book of the Year. I'm whistling there. Her articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, Religion News Services, Christianity Today, Comment Magazine, The Point Magazine, and elsewhere. And she is a founding member of the Pelican Project and a senior fellow with the Trinity Forum, she lives with her husband, Jonathan J. Dub, and their three children in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Tish, welcome to the Things Above podcast and conversation. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me back. We've actually done one of these before, but it we did, never yeah. saw the light of day because of well, it was horrible. technical difficulties. It was, yeah, it was not your fault necessarily. I think you might have said something really brilliant and we lost it. So, <laughs> But you're back and I'm excited to have you back. And let's talk a little bit. I want to talk, you have a new book I want to talk about, and we'll have you on the podcast for the new book, Prayer in the Night, which I love, and I was asked to write an endorsement for and did easily. It was a great, great read. amazing, too. Oh, thank you. over the top. (laughs) Over the top. Uh, Well, when when we talk about that book, when I have you back for that book, I will tell you the odd circumstances in which I read your book, but that's another story. But so Liturgy of the Ordinary, as I just mentioned, um, gosh, it won uh, CT's book. So your first book wins Book of the Year. I mean, it's like the rookie wins the MVP. And yeah. how was that on your soul? Was that a little hard on your soul? Because I prayed for you. Yes. I mean, you've had to do some spiritual uh, care for me about that. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, it's so great, right? I mean, I'm I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, the book in general, just, you know, it was, a I was not an unknown author. I had, a, I had a little platform at the time, but I, um, was fairly not very well known. And so, um, no one, including me, expected it to do what it has done. Um, and yeah, it won an award and it's in seven languages now or something like that. Um, so it's, uh, it was difficult for my soul in many different ways, actually. Um, and I don't, I, I don't know how much to go into it. Cause I could literally spend the rest of the time. Like we could do a sure. spiritual direction right now talking about how this was hard, but I mean, in some ways, um, so Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, who is an, author um yeah amazing kind of stuff public intellectual mm-hmm. right he um he it's funny because uh after his book i think um his book won a pulitzer uh, but he had done several books before then uh that didn't get a ton of press i guess or didn't you know i think he did fine with them but it wasn't certainly not the success he has now and then he wrote between the world and me and it took off i mean it it, it changed yeah, huge American book, culture. Yeah. And then he, he said something, um, afterwards he said, I, I'm learning that, um, success can be as hard on writing as failure and, um, or something like that. I'm mm-hmm. success can be as hard on the creative process as failure. So I, it's true. Um, I totally agree. And then, yeah. um, 
kind of all the stuff you have to go through spiritually to release a book into the world, you know, getting to the place where, you know, if you're never, if you're not enough without a successful book, you'll never be enough with one. You have to go through all that same stuff, like after a successful book, um, because it's, it's still not enough. I mean, the goalpost just always moves. Nothing is ever enough. So now it's like the next book has to get the, I mean, do you know what I mean? Does it have to get the, yeah, you've got to win the Nobel prize or something. something yeah, else? yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So right. I think all the time, Annie Dillard is a, a literary hero of mine. I love her writing and she won the Pulitzer prize on her very first book, um, which was Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, which I think she was like 30 when mm-hmm. something 28 when she wrote it. And she struggled with that a lot. I mean, she said like, uh, there's some quote of her saying like, I've, you know, wondered basically if I like blown it for the rest of my career. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she wrote, she went on to write a lot of great books. So, um, but I've <laughs> not won the pull. So I'm nowhere near that level. And so often I think like, well, you know, at least I didn't win a Pulitzer on my first book. <laughs> like, okay. It I could like be worse. There. <laughs> but I'm really grateful. I'm really grateful. But I mean, tell me, you've got, I feel like this is, this is the struggle for writers, especially all Christian writers is like, we're doing this, like Jesus did not die on the cross so that I could have sell sell books like so that i could have a successful book that's not the point of this right christian story so we're handling this christian story like we're holding it and extending it um but then we like get get awards for it which is which is honoring and weird and um so how do you not get your own ego all up in that and wrapped in that and i mean you you I'm you've had success and you have this successful podcast and as, as a professor and as a writer. So that it's a weird thing, right? I mean, I think it's, it's a, a it is for ministry. It, it is, you know, I, William Paul Young was on this podcast season two and um, he talked about how he, you know, he wrote the shack and he wrote it just for his family. His wife basically said, you know, write this for the kids. Like what's your theology? And he wrote and he, he, photocopied 15 copies. And he said, that was all I wanted to do. Everything I wanted the book to do, it did right then. And then it went on to do crazy, right? 22 million copies. Like it's a crazy wildfire unicorn of a book. Um, but what Paul said was if I'd, he said, he, I wrote it when I was 50 after I'd, my life had fallen apart. If I wrote it when I was a 40, it would have killed me. And, and he talked about how success um, is actually much more uh, dangerous than than failure. Like failure, it sort of crushes us, and but we come out strong and we move forward. But but he he said something interesting that that uh, success is sort of reveals all the flaws. And if 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 uh, if what you're looking for in your writing is is this the the accolades that come with it, it's going to be a huge disappointment. And and that's, I think that's really true. And I, I, so I knew when I, when you had that success, I remember seeing, uh, when you'd won book of the year for CT and, and I went, Oh, this will be, this will be hard for Tish. <laughs> I just knew it would. Cause it was, it's just like, what do is, you do now? It still is. Next? And it was and so, really so hard, um, doing a second book. I just didn't want to, cause a book is so much work, you know, it's just a ton of work yeah. to write a book. And so no, writing it, knowing that, you know, <laughs> very lit. I mean, with all probability, it will not be as successful as the person. I mean, I hope that's wrong, but, um, just chances are. And so, um, it's, I was like, I'm putting all this work in and it probably, it just feels like, oh, it's so much work. And it, it, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if it'll build in terms of the career. I think it, so I had to shift and basically just say, I just want to, I just want to grow. I just want to grow in Jesus, but I also want to grow like in the craft. I want to grow in the craft of writing. And if I can grow in the craft of writing, 
then that's that's my mark of that's my mark if i can press yeah, myself i think that's writing, it it's, that's it's right I'm, this is art yeah. and you just grow in in the art of what writing is and you for me what's saving for me is 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 focusing on um you know that that and you, you and i've talked about this writing as an act of love you know looking at it as uh, th- this is this is the way that i love people i mean god's given a gift for me with words and that's a rare thing. And so I'm just trying to honor God in that and love people through it. And I think that's, that's what really helps, I think. But, you know, uh, Russell Brand, the comedian, he had a line that I, I committed to memory. He says, um, you have to learn how to make friends with the emptiness of success. Because mm. it, it is empty. It's, it's completely, I mean, you, it's like Christmas morning. You, you're so excited, the gifts, and then by Christmas afternoon, you're like, let's nap. I mean, that was, it's a letdown, you know. <laughs> And, you know, you first see your book, the first time they send you, the publisher sends it and you look and go, it's my book. And you can't believe how amazing it is. And you do some things. And then it just is like uh, your book, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And so I'm sure you're probably a little tired of Liturgy of the Ordinary because you've done all kinds of radio and podcast and interviews and talked about it till you're tired of it. Um, yeah. But I want to talk about it, if you don't mind, because our <laughs> listeners, I want, yeah, there are listeners who you- don't know about this book and it's so good. You ask good questions uh, also. Like, I don't think anyone has asked me on a podcast, hey, was it hard for you that your book did well? <laughs> so <laughs> I think you ask more insightful questions. Um, oh, well, thank you. Than, well, so ask I, me insightful questions about literature. Insightful questions. Yeah, I, I will. Oh, yes, I will try and that. Also, and I'm like, I mean, I gotta say, I, I'm again, I'm not complaining. Like, I'm so grateful that it's resonated with people. And Liturgy of the Ordinary is always going to be like, you know, like in, in terms of books, like my first child, like, I love it. I, it was hard one. Like I wrote it because I, um, struggle so deeply with the ordinary and, uh, and I struggle so deeply with dailiness and wanting, wanting to do sort of big world changing things and having to constantly, um, figure out where Jesus is in my actual day. So in some sense, it it's okay that I keep talking about this because I haven't nailed it and moved on. Like it's, it is something I, I haven't read the book since I, um, it came out because I read it like 14 times in a year. So I don't recommend doing that, but, um, because of all the editing, but since then I still feel like I'm having to learn this stuff over and over again. Yeah. So in that sense, yeah. it keeps changing. I think books are like that, right? I mean, they are. You yeah. Read a book and you come back and read it again four years later, and it's the same book, but because you're different, the book is different to you. Yeah, the book is different, and and also just remembering is which is is true. I mean, I remember Richard Foster after Celebration of Discipline had sold, I don't know, a million copies or something crazy, and Richard just he said to me, "But you realize that's like." Point oh one percent of the world, or something like <laughs> like exactly most right. of the world doesn't know my book. They've never seen it. They don't right. know what it is. They never will. And uh, it kind of puts that into perspective. And that's true. So yeah, I think Liturgy of the Ordinary will be with you for your life. And that's that's a. I think just as Jim Gaffigan will never escape hot pockets. Uh, <laughs> you, you. That's such a great. <laughs> you're yeah. never going to escape that, and that's a beautiful thing. So let's talk about this book. I love it so much. It's great. It has peanut butter and jelly on the cover which yes. is a great cover. Um, yeah, I, one of the things. Got a hot pocket on the cover. <laughs> that would almost be better in some ways because that's so ordinary right now for many people. It's like the most gourmet they can get in this pandemic. But, you know, uh, well, all right, liturgy of liturgy. Let's start with that word because I imagine a lot of listeners right now are going, I don't really know what that is. Is that the Catholic? What is that? And mm-hmm. Liturgy literally means work of the people. It's like what we do. It's our response. But the liturgy that we use in churches, and I often say this, there's no non-liturgical churches. Even Quakers have a liturgy. It's maybe pretty simple, but they have one. Right. So the things that we do, what what were you trying to do uh, to connect liturgy and ordinary life? I guess that's that's probably the biggest question of all why you wrote it, I guess. Yeah. So, I mean, the book started with... Um, 
me struggling with ordinary stuff. So I, I didn't exactly set out. I didn't say I'm going to write a book on liturgy. No, um, I, um, you know, spent my twenties kind of in and around radical Christian communities, living in, um, community and with among the poor, um, and sort of wanted to, um, well, I wanted to be, I wanted to follow in Rich Mullins footsteps. I mean, I wanted without being a singer songwriter, cause I can't play an instrument, but, um, I wanted to sort of, I, I like didn't wear shoes and like, um, gave away a lot of my clothes and like wanted, and this is all like for Jesus. Like I cared about, um, justice and poverty and, um, and it was absolutely because of the scriptures that motivated this in me. But then, um, sort of time that time passed and I ended up, you know, married to my husband who was getting a PhD at Vanderbilt and we had two little kids in a house and, um, and, you know, had rent to pay and I had a regular job, um, I was working at a uh, organic grocery store <laughs> when we started oh, wow. and was like, how in the world, like I realized there was this day that I realized cause I lived in, in, uh, I taught English in East Africa at, to refugees for a while. And where I was, there was, um, guerrilla warfare. It was, it was a little bit risky, not, not crazy risky, but, uh, there was skirmishes with, break out. And so there was, um, some warfare and I realized I had far more anxiety living in America in my regular home in Nashville, um, with two kids at home than in a very ordinary kind of life than I did doing this thing that looked risky on the outside. And then it was scarier to me to meet my neighbors in that place than in this thing in, you know, being a missionary overseas. So I thought, well, I just have no idea where Jesus is in this. Like, how do I follow God in my actual life? Um, not plan on how I'll follow God in the future, but how do I actually follow Jesus in today? And so I wrestled with that question and there was a lot of books at the time. So there, there was a spate of books that were like radical, like they were literally called things like radical, sold out, on fire, like thing. And then there was this sort of counter trend of books that were called like boring and ordinary. And, um, and so I was reading some of those and they were, they're good. They're good books, but, um, but it kept sort of saying like your ordinary life matters to God, you know, um, sort of, focusing on that, which is true. But I kind of said like, okay, but why and how, like, this can't just be another point of doctrine that or ordinary life matters. Like, why does it matter? How does it matter? And sort of through, through, so that I was asking that question at the same time I was becoming, Ang I mean, I was starting to, I was becoming an Anglican. I was going to an Anglican church. Um, it was pretty new at that. That was a new thing in my life. I was exploring liturgy. Um, I agree with you. All churches have liturgy. So I've always had liturgy, but I was sort of thinking more about the practices of the church. Um, and then I came across James K. A. Smith's um, book on um, desiring the kingdom, where he really goes into liturgy and formative practices as the way that we are shaped. And that was sort of like my answer, like mm -hmm. in terms of how and why, daily life works, what I came to is, is the notion of formation, that formation is something that happens in our actual life, in our daily life. And of course, formation happened when I was, you know, working overseas and working with the poor, but formation also happens um, when I'm washing the dishes and having to pay rent and working in an organic grocery store. So, um, so this idea of formation became very important to me and I, I began to study it a lot and that's sort of where the liturgy part of the book came in of um, 
So what I ended up doing is taking a little moment from every day life, like every chapter is um, waking, um, brushing my teeth, um, losing my keys, fighting with Jonathan, my spouse, but um, you know, Jonathan. So Mm -hmm. um, sitting in traffic, these are just some like titles of the chapter, sending email. Mm -hmm. And then I paired that with a liturgical practice. um, And I spoke about them together. So waking in baptism, um, fighting with Jonathan and passing the peace, sitting in traffic and the liturgical calendar. Like I, I pair them so that I use one to talk about the other. And um, so I use ordinary life to talk about liter- ancient church practices. And then I use ancient spiritual practices to talk about ordinary life. And doing that, the sort of um, symbiosis between those two helped me kind of drill down into the why and how that ordinary life actually what it, what it what is possible the the promise of uh, of an ordinary day um, lived in the spirit what that could yeah. look like. Well, and I, I think I think the reason that the book, well, you're a great writer, so that's helpful. But uh, I think the reason that the book has done what it's done is that it it steps into the reality that the vast majority of our lives, even as Christians who are engaged in Christian spiritual formation, the vast majority of our lives are the ordinary events mm-hmm. of living. You know, I mean, because, I mean, our listeners to this podcast are people who are interested in Christian spiritual formation and living a deeper life with God sort of thing. And so we know things like fasting and prayer and solitude and silence, you know, Richard Foster's Big 12 or Dallas's other 10 or whatever, you know, you got every, all these practices, but the truth is, is that that's not where most of our lives are lived. Like I love the disciplines or I like to call them soul training exercises. I love them. And I, they're a regular part of my life. Sabbath, you know, I do, I do these things, but so much of our lives are in the, the ordinary moments. And since you mentioned the the liturgical calendar, I mean, I think a great analogy of your book is that when you think about the liturgical calendar, what, 33 weeks are ordinary time. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like, like, like we love Easter. stretch, right. Yeah, the long which we're in right now uh, when we're recording this, uh, it's green on all the vestments and everything in our church. It's, it's, that's a lot of time is ordinary time. I think it's beautiful that it's what it's, it's called ordinary time. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think there's just a lot of pressure on, on that, that we want to do the disciplines. I mean, when I was, in college, Richard Foster was my professor. And so, I mean, after I, I got ignited by that, I wanted to become the poster child for all, all 12 of the disciplines, you know, like I will do all of them all the time better than anyone's ever done them. And, you know, it, it's, I think I've heard you once say that's unsustainable, you know, that's not where life is. And how do I have a normal life when I have a mortgage? And, and the other thing too, Tish, I think is that, um, what I love about your book that is different than other books about this and I'm not denigrating them, but just some of those books, they make me feel like I need to just see the wonder of the sunset or (laughs) see a world in a grain of sand, as William Blake said. I need to have these mystical experiences in the midst of them. And you're just saying, no, actually, I lost my keys. And that can be a forming thing and uh, traffic. And, you know, that's what that's why I think your book is is so helpful to so many people. Yeah, I have a friend that's partly due to my friend Krista. I have this friend Krista, and I told her about this book, and she was like, okay, just don't tell me that I have to, like, stare and wonder at the sun reflecting off my son's hair or something like that. Like, because I know that I should do that, but the reality is he's hitting a sister, and we're late to an appointment. Like, don't, like, give me, like you know, something that I have to emotionally drum up basically. And I kept that in mind, um, a lot. And so, yeah, I think, um, it's funny. I think in evangelicalism, if you were formed at all in or around that, or even other kinds of Protestant, um, and maybe Catholic, maybe it's just an American thing. I don't know, but Christianity in America, there's this pressure to get to this sort of emotional place. Um, or kind of spiritual experience, you know, it's so focused on the experience of spirituality. 
Um, and there's other forms of this. Like then I, I was kind of in reaction to that. Probably I was, I was in a ref, very reformed Presbyterian place, um, which was very cognitive, was very skeptical of, of experience, but still you had to sort of get to a cognitive place, like an ardor of belief, like a, like a place of mental understanding, like there's, but there's still this, um, this sort of striving after a certain kind of like mental intellectual place or understanding. Um, and the reality is a lot of the Christian life is you're not necessarily feeling it's not feeling led. I mean, I talk about this in the next book, but that faith is, is in many ways like a craft. Like I show up and write whether I feel like it or not. And, and then there's moments of euphoria and there's moments that are truly great. But I think there is a sense of like, most of our life is spent, like you said, like in getting dinner on the table and doing our work and being with the people in our lives are, you know, our the people closest to us that know us best and that know what's wrong with us. And, um, but even beyond that, the spiritual disciplines are often not mountaintop experiences. And so you have to get used to being like, I read the scriptures today and it was baffling or frustrating or nothing. Like mm -hmm. it wasn't any of those. I just, it was like an interesting thing. I'll probably forget what I wrote, read today. But it fed me. This is the words of life. And so um, I do think there needs, there is a sense of that even, even these spiritual practices are ordinary. And I see this mm -hmm. all the time as a priest. You know, we go out there, we do the Eucharist, which is absolutely this holy and sacred thing. Um, but five minutes before the service starts, we're like, you know, oh, like John is late. We're, we're, there's, we're supposed to have like the cross here for the kids to carry out during the kids sermon. Where's the cross? We can't find it. Somebody left their keys in the car. Like there's just this ordinary stuff. And then like, that's where you are. And then you're like, all right, like I need the Holy spirit to go. We're going to go do this like sacred thing. But it's, but even that, like the ordinary there's no part of our lives because we're embodied, because we're limited, mm -hmm. because we're distracted, because we're sinners, because, and not even just because we're sinners, because we're human, because we're like made of dust. We, there's just really, <laughs> there's no place that you can possibly get to where the ordinary doesn't come in, you know, it doesn't, it's you can have the most euphoric experience of your life and then, you know, get a mosquito bite in the same like experience. It just feels like um, ordinary is with us. And so we need to make friends with it, as you said earlier, like it needs to become part of, of the joy of being human that even, even these disciplines um, can be so, so very ordinary, you know? Uh, uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, usually and, and when I fast, what I, I don't have this, experience i don't have the heavens open up and a deeper knowledge of jesus love for me when i fast i realize like what a jerk i am most of the time. <laughs> i just which maybe is the best thing you can learn right yeah <laughs> I'm just right angry and yeah. yeah exactly so it's this constant sort of um it's imposed humility i think yeah i think so well here, here's my theory on since you know i've gotten to know you and, and Richard, you know, foster really well. I mean, celebration of discipline, boom, you know, explodes, does all this work. I think the reason that I'm just going to tell you my theory and let you, let you riff on my theory, see if you think it's true. Okay. So celebration of discipline did what it did because largely Protestants had no sense of these practices. Like we didn't know, we thought, spiritual form. We didn't even know spiritual formation. We just, we knew Christian education, maybe, but it, our Christian life consisted of, I go to church, I am, I'm in a Sunday school class. Maybe I read the Bible. So Richard opened up this, these practices. He dusted off these old ancient practices and people went, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I've never tried meditation. Of course that got him in a lot of trouble, but 
um, you know, they, they, they were doing these things. But Richard's definition of the spiritual disciplines are spiritual disciplines place us before God so that God can transform us. And so the reason that the book did what it did is bec- is not because Richard's, he's a good writer, he's a great writer. It's not because of that. It's because he gave people practices in which they found a way to get connected to God. God met them in the practice, and that was the sacred mm. divine encounter. Here's what I think about your book. Liturgy of the Ordinary was saying, look, most of our lives are ordinary, and you don't have to make them necessarily spiritual, but God will meet you in that. So a way I, I like to think about it is it's not so much, you know, finding God in the ordinary as it's being found by God yeah. in the ordinary. That's the that's what your book does. It it's um I'm not you don't have to grit your teeth and you know, Dallas would always say, You don't have to make it happen, Jim. You don't have to make it happen. But if I'm just open and a, and and willing to connect and see that losing my keys or answering emails is is a part of the life that I'm living and it's forming me maybe God can find me in that. Mm-hmm. So that's my theory. What do you think of my theory? It's brand new. It's about 15 minutes old. <laughs> so your theory is that um, books that, well, I don't understand your theory. Your theory is my that. Theory, my theory is that books that do what, what like your book did, mm-hmm. um, oh. they do that because God uses them. It's, right. you know, like you can speak through anything even crazy people like us with feet of clay. But he, he is, when a book does something like that, I mean, I could you could pick a book and I could give you why. I mean, the reason yeah, I think Good and Beautiful God did what it did is because, and I had no idea. I thought the Good and Beautiful God was, was probably the least interesting of the three books of Good and Beautiful God, Life, and Community. And it far outsells the other two. It's mm-hmm. like three to one. And the reason is I had no idea how, how bad people's God narratives were. I mean, mm-hmm. people have these talk God narratives. And then God just went, I'm going to use this little book, you know, this little book with the, the fruit on it. And, and, uh, cause people don't love me cause they don't know me. And, you know, so I think that's why it happened. Why did the shack do what it did? Cause people didn't think that the Trinity was real and loved them. I don't know. So I just, I think that's what your book, God took you and used you. And, and, and this book is a way for people to see the, the sacredness in the ordinary, but not have to try to grit your teeth and make it something like just yeah. embrace it. And I so hope, that's, that's my I theory. That's true. I mean, I really hope that's true. And I definitely identify that. I think at the end of the day, it is God that finds us and um, is present in the ordinary. I mean, absolutely. And so God finds us in the ordinary because where else is he going to find us? Right. Like that's what, mm-hmm. that's what I was saying about this is just sort of inescapable part of being human, but, um, yeah, I hope so. I don't know. I mean, well, this gets in very meta. I mean, this may not be what you want to talk about on your podcast and we could even edit this out. It's hard because I, I know you so part. So I'm like, want to talk about my book, but I'm also sort of like, Hey, can I have like, I'm getting like spiritual direction in public from you or whatever. <laughs> like I'm using you as a spiritual director, but it, with the Christian industry, like I do think the, the, the sort of evangelical publishing industry is a, is a crazy, it's wild West. It's a crazy place. And partly because, um, God, God uses it. Like you're saying, like, I mean, God has used books in my life in, in such profound ways. You know, I mean, I found out about you because of uh, arrow pointing to heaven, um, your book about Rich Mullins years and Mm. years ago, but that deeply impacted me. Um, and enough where I like, I drove to Kansas. So, um, with a, a kind of a pilgrimage with friends. So, um, even heavy theology books. Like I'm thinking like um, the moral vision of the new Testament. That was such a Mm. formative book for me. Like, so the books have, um, you know, since Augustine's confessions, even, and before um, books, uh, even about people's own experience have, have resonated and shaped the church. So books are huge. And God uses them and God uses them to find people like you were saying. And so I think that's part of it, but there's also books, there's Christian books that do incredibly well. And I think 
this is terrible <laughs> like horrible theology yeah. very vapid or the they're like not even really christian books they're kind of, I mean, they use jesus but there's like nothing recognizably christian about them or they're very very prosperity gospely or they're you know we could go down our list of heresies so um i don't want to say if a book does well, it's because God has used it and it's good and true. Because I think there are books who, that do well that are you shouldn't read or trust. You can read them. It's fine. But don't trust them. And uh, and there's books that don't do so well. Little books that have been huge blessings to me. Um, but But in general, I hope that I hope that those of us that are writing are doing this as a ministry and like all ministry, like when you see, like, it's amazing when, when people come into your church and find you and you um, are able to see their lives transformed, like it's a, it always feels miraculous. And so in that Mm -hmm. sense, that's why it's the, there's so much weird about Christian publishing, but there's also this like, yet God uses these institutions and these human um, structures to bring glory to himself, to bring his kingdom. And I've seen that time and time again, and it always feels miraculous. Like Mm -hmm. writing in general, it feels like you put this message in a bottle and you send it out. Like I did this in my you know, in coffee shops in my house. And I, and I send it this message out in the bottle and then it's like a bottle comes back and someone found your message and they resonated with it. And so some of the coolest things that have happened is when people have taken liturgy, the ordinary and um, applied it to their own lives in ways that I couldn't have. Like I got a letter from a group of chemists um, in that are at Wheaton and they, they read it as a chemistry department and said, what are the liturgies of chemistry? Like, what are the practices we do over and over again as part of our work? And how do we invite God into those practices? How do we meet God in those practices? And how do we um, have even those practices in conversation with practices of the ancient church? And so um, I have a friend who wrote a liturgy of surgery, like a prayer for surgery that he... um, Mm walks through, he's a surgeon and he, at certain times in the surgery, he, he goes and, um, scrubs out and prays these prayers and scrubs back in and comes and finish like 10 hour surgeries, right? When you, when you Mm. would take breaks anyway, he has, he wrote his own liturgical prayers for surgery and he prays these prayers. So it's like, I couldn't do that. I could I couldn't talk about the liturgy of chemistry or the liturgy of surgery. <laughs> but yeah. um people take these ideas and and apply it to their own lives and community and that I love that. Like when a book takes on a life of its own where you start making the the book becomes about your life instead of about the author's life or their experience with God, it becomes about your own life and your own experiences with God, which is kind of what you're talking about is it helps mm-hmm people actually, it's not information about God. It's actually empowering people to seek God where they are, like in their actual life. So that's been fun. Like I got this letter from, uh, from, I'm bringing this partly because you're, you're talking to me from friends and this is not friends, but it's not Quakers, but I got this letter from, um, an, Amish community in Ireland that is reading my book together, which like you would not, that wasn't, you know, when I, when you I weren't thinking f- that fill out like my <laughs> audience questionnaire, I wasn't like the Amish at the top Irish Amish in Ireland. Yeah. <laughs> but they're reading it together. And they said, you know, as Amish, like we're a little uncomfortable with the notion of liturgy, as you might imagine. Um, Although uh, both of us, you and I would both say, well, you have liturgy, whether you want it or not, but they are deep. They said, we're deeply interested in practices, spiritual practices we embrace in community. And so our elders are reading this um, to talk about what it is to embrace spiritual practices and community in our ordinary life. That's obviously such a different context than what I could ever write into 
but they are having these conversations that I wish I could overhear of, of how this applies to their own community. And that's obviously mm. such a different liturgical context than my own, just like Quakers would be a different liturgical context than Anglicanism, but it's, um, they found s- such resonance in it. And, and that's what feels miraculous is, is you, you write these words, you send them out, you have no idea if anyone will see them. And then besides like your mom and your best friend, you <laughs> have to buy the book. And then, and then you hear back from people and they've resonated. Like it's become their own story and their own mm-hmm. experience. And that's, it feels miraculous to me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think the other reason that your book has done what it's done is that it brings together, when we started Renovare, we, we, uh, when we added the sixth stream, which was the, um, the sacramental life or the incarnational tradition. And, and it took us years to add that because Richard, we originally had five. So the, for the first decade, we had these five traditions, contemplative, charismatic, holiness, evangelical, social justice. We had, but then we added the incarnational sacramental. But I remember um, the moment that the guy that designed our icons, and it was brilliant because he, the icon that, that uh, we use with Renovare for the sacramental life is um, it hands over a chalice, except it's like on a potter's wheel. So it's like, in one sense, he's making, he's making the chalice, right? He's, he's throwing a pot, he's making a, the chalice, but then in the other sense, it's the sacramental. And so you have that combination of, um, of work, creating the embodiment, the incarnation, and then you have the sacrament, the idea that God meets us in the, in that. And I just mm-hmm. think that's what you do so well with the book. And, and I think also the fact that you're so willing as a writer to be vulnerable and honest and talk about a fight with your husband or losing your keys uh, is that's the stuff that we're living. And mm-hmm. I think I just, I, I'll stop talking about why your book's successful. If you'd like that, it's <laughs> uh, like telling, telling me why my book did so well. Uh, but okay, I'm going to, I want to end this on one question though, because I, this is the one and, and you touch on it a little but I'm, I'm seeing, we talk about we're in a pandemic now, but for a long time now, we've been in this pandemic of screens and screens have just dominated ordinary life. And I've heard you talk about, you know, what it is, but I'd love to you to tell our listeners, like, what is it that draws us to screens? Why are they, why are they now? Like when my phone tells me at the end of the week, here's how much do you were on this? You know, mm-hmm. um, why is that such a part of our lives now? What's the draw? Gosh, that's such a huge question. Um, so it's, I think some of it is that we are just wired for connection. We're wired for communion, right? Because we're made in the image of God, who is Trinity. And so we're just desperate. We're just desperately seeking connection to other people. And so because of social media, I think it um, takes that longing for connection, the longing to be seen, and it turns it into a market commodity. Mm. Um, and so, um, we are, I mean, there are engineers on the other side of your screen working very hard to target the things that you, not like you as a man in America, but like you, Jim Smith, like you very specifically, right. My likes and my algorithms and desire need. I mean, just the thing, just so specific to you. And so, um, it's, it's bait for our souls. I mean, it is Mm. shiny objects, like, like just as a bass goes to a shiny lure, it's like the shiniest stuff of our souls and it's good stuff like connection and longing and needs. Those are all good things from God, but, um, but we often, because we don't gather around a table every evening with our best friends, most of us, I don't. And mm-hmm. um, we don't, you know, spend our nights around a campfire telling, you know, listening to our, the chief of our tribe tell stories. Like we, we're deeply lonely. And so I think that the social media piece, um, it, these 
these things we really desire, like to be known, to express ourselves, to connect with others, it, um, it kind of promises us that. I think it doesn't fulfill that, but I think it promises us that. And, um, and then maybe it fulfills it one out of every 15 times or something. So it keeps us coming back for more. Um, one out of every hundred times would be enough to keep us coming back, you know, if we mm-hmm. feel seen and known. So some of it's that. I think some of it is we've developed a habit, a liturgy, a habit of distraction. Yeah, um, right. Some of it is that we do live in culture, like we're embodied beings that live in an actual society. So I can say tomorrow, like, no more screens for me. I am not looking at a screen. Um, but that would mean I can't do the work that I'm supposed to do. Um, I could get off social media, but I have a publishing company that's like, please don't get off social media entirely because it would be helpful to be able to tell people when you're going to publish a book uh, or when you have an article or, you know, the New York times asked me to write an article because they were able to connect with me through social media. Right. So, um, I mean, this is a tough thing for me because because there's always sort of like the folks going off the grid, you know, entirely. Like there's the Wendell Berries or even more. So I read this great book um, called The Unsettlers, and the guy in it just he he won't he thinks cars are ruining culture because they are destroying the environment and um, destroying our cities, and he's absolutely right. I mean, that's factual. They are ruining the environment and our cities and making us not know each other. And I still use cars every day. This Mm -hmm. guy does not use cars and lives off the grid in, I think, Missouri in in farms, his own food, and then uses no fossil fuels whatsoever. So, I mean, that's amazing. But that, um, that would mean none of us um like new york city would be over like we can't have have broadway if that's the case like we can't have art if that's um the case so um or this podcast does it we can't (laughs) have this podcast and i can't be friends with you because i don't you know and and i can't live i live on the other side of the country from my mother like i how would i see her so um so he would, if he was on this podcast, he would probably have a response to all of that. But nonetheless, um, what I'm saying is that there is some of this that just feels like if you're going to be in culture, you can't, you can't have like perfect sort of purity or, mm-hmm. and we can't anyway, cause we're sinful. Even if we could like disentangle ourselves from all kinds of evil structures, like we still have ourselves and the sin that's yeah. in us. So um, Which is but, a part of the liturgy, right? We confess our sins, right? So I every week, some of it is we're, is it's just a cultural phenomenon. We have screens, I, but I think some of it is we we go to distraction, we go to this um, habitually, and and we what draws us there is our is things that are legitimate longings, but it doesn't fulfill it. I mean, it's the difference between like having sex and looking at porn. And I'm not saying mm-hmm. that being on Twitter is like looking at porn. It's not, it's, it's not the same thing, but I'm only saying that the analogy is not that these are the same thing. The analogy is that um, the longing for communion and connection is real. And we're just trying to get it without the risk of time and embodied relationships and uh, the difficulty of that. And so um yeah. And the other thing is like, there is a physical phenomenon to this, that the more you use screens, this Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows, I'd recommend, but he makes a really good case that the more we're on screens, the more our brain begins to process the world in that way. So um, brains literally change physically, like they change mm-hmm. to take mm-hmm. in um, small snatches of information but they don't. So you see this with, with younger folks who've grown up with screens, they can take in lots of information quickly and, but the, it's hard for them to, to stay, a, to attend to an argument over for mm. a long, for 10 minutes, right. For a long period of time. And 10 minutes would be a very 
short period of time mm. for the history of humanity, but now that would be a very long period of time. So, um, and that's an actual neurological change. Like you train your brain to do this. And so, um, things like silence and even like complex and nuanced theological arguments are becoming like literally harder more mm -hmm. difficult for our brains to process because we're so bombarded by information and noise all the time. So it's absolutely, an I mean, I think screens, screens are now we're almost all like as, as coffee and alcohol are kind of low grade addictions for the entire American public. Like, so, so is screens. Yeah, Absolutely. It really is. And I'm, I'm glad I really loved what you said about that because there's, there's so much to think about why we need distraction, what we're looking for, what's happening to our brains. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, we have to think about it. You know, I, I often say to students in spiritual formation classes that we, we can't plow around this thing. This is talk about ordinary life or spiritual disciplines. If this is where we're spending so much time, it's forming us. I thought that was fascinating what you said about how it's even neurologically shaping us. Well, Tish, thank you for being on the Things Above podcast, having this Things Above conversation. As always, every time I'm with you, uh, you say stuff that's like, whoa, wow, that's fun. That's interesting. That's deep. And thanks <laughs> for being you and yeah. doing what you do. Thank you. Let's do it again. I want to talk about your book, Prayer in the Night. I love this book, and that's coming out in 2021. So let's have you back and talk about that book. Great. You 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 say it's a yes. I'm going to get a commitment right now. Yes, I will okay. do it for you. <laughs> All right. All right. All right. Thank you. Wow, I really enjoyed that conversation with Tish Harrison Warren. I hope you did as well, and I hope you join me next week for episode 88. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith, and you can learn more about this podcast at ApprenticeInstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and you can always subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope as always is that if one day you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above. <laughs>